Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one: giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org/donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org/donate. Thank you for your support and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Our topic today is urban regions that power the global economy. 20% of the world's people live in cities, and they produce 50% of the world's economic output. American cities drive the U.S. economy, but they're not getting a lot of love these days from state capitals or the nation's capital. Economic stagnation and federal gridlock are squeezing metropolitan regions that have relied for decades on federal dollars to build roads and deliver services. Add in the pressures of rising temperatures and rising seas, and the country's mayors face some of the some very daunting challenges. Urban America needs a new playbook. I'm Greg Dalton, and over the next hour, we'll look at the future of American cities with our live audience here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. We're pleased to have with us three guests: Mayor Ed Lee of San Francisco and a former city administrator. Kofi Bonner is president of the Bay Area Urban Division of Lennar, one of the country's largest home builders. And Bruce Katz is vice president of the Brookings Institution. He's co-author of the book *The Metropolitan Revolution: How Cities and Metros Are Fixing Our Broken Politics*. And fragile economy. He's also a former chief of staff of the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Please welcome them to Climate One. Thank you, gentlemen, all for coming.、Uh, Bruce Katz, let's begin with you and look at the big picture. Then we'll get down to some of the specifics of the Bay Area in particular.、Uh, you write that the Great Recession was a rude wake-up call that. Said, there's a broken model of growth in American cities. Tell us about that. So I think, first of all, thank you for having me here and for being on this panel、uh, with the mayor and, and Kofi.、Um, I think what led to the Great Recession、uh, was a misguided growth model,、uh, which basically said we we can grow an economy characterized by consumption and debt, and particularly focused on the metrics around home building and expansion of homes, right? And that all came a cropper in 2008.、Um, the fundamentals would tell us that we need to grow an economy, and frankly, a lot of this is present in this region. That's fueled by innovation, ideas, and manufacturing, because the two are inextricably linked. Powered by low carbon, right? Your, your comment about climate, driven by exports and global engagement. If you actually build an economy like that. It can be rich with opportunity, and we can begin to grow not just more jobs, but better jobs. 
Because what we saw in the last decade is the number of people in poverty and near poverty grow from 80 million people to 107 million people. In theory, you would want a national government to help you restructure your economy from one kind of growth model or vision to another one. Well, the federal government has left the building for all intents and purposes, and they don't seem to be coming back anytime soon. So what's going to happen and what this book really talks about uh, is the good news that cities and metropolitan areas and the mayors and the business and civic and university leaders that really co-produce their solutions and co-govern their communities, they're stepping up and doing the hard work to grow jobs, make their economies more prosperous, and respond to climate, right, and these environmental challenges. They're investing in infrastructure. They're making manufacturing a priority again. They're equipping workers with the skills they need. Power, in many respects, and responsibility is devolving down in the United States, and leaders across discipline, across sector, across jurisdiction, and across party are stepping up. This is a big structural shift um, in how we think about who runs America and who governs America. I don't think it's cyclical. I think it is now deeply embedded in our DNA. Mayor Lee, can San Francisco and the Bay Area uh, grow a prosperous future without dollars from Washington and Sacramento? Well, we certainly are beginning to do so. We have to, in fact. I think uh, the predictions are that we have no other choice. And uh, first of all, let me thank you for inviting us here to Commonwealth. It's always great to be here. Um, And I've been, of course, very lucky uh, to be the mayor of this great city. When we talk about innovation, this city has had a history of innovation, Uh, whether it was for human rights or uh, societal or same-sex marriage. There's just been that innovative spirit always in our city. So we never really let national or regional problems get to us. But uh, I, I found as I took the helm of San Francisco, I've been lucky to be the mayor of two and a half years now, that uh, we were, like many cities, faced with uh, very traditional financial systems that were not going to save us uh, from the likes of Detroit, Vallejo, Stockton, and others. We were uh, really looking at whether we're going to continue doing the same things uh, that would bring other people and other cities into financial problems. So I, I took the helm knowing and hoping that all of my years of experience, I could have conversations in a very collaborative way and build a spirit where we weren't trying to blame each other what the problem was, except where they are, and then find our talent in our communities, the magic between the board of supervisors and the mayor's office, but then the fiscal talent in the city, the business talent in the city, bring them together with all of the neighborhood leaders and find solutions and create those ways in which we can talk about the problems, see what the facts are. And I think that's incredibly important because having worked in city government for 21 years before I became mayor, I saw those years where the mayor would, well, I wouldn't say they were crying, but they certainly weren't having a whole lot of fun uh, uh, with their conversations with everybody else across the aisle. Uh, and so uh, I, I worked hard to create a collaborative atmosphere so that we could receive facts in front of us and then challenge ourselves based on those facts what we could do. And that's I've been working hard on it. I've used all of my past civil rights skills to be able to do that. Uh, and I do think I have very strong feelings about 
this city. Uh, I've been buoyed so much by what has happened in the past two and a half years. Uh, but the thing that drives me the most is when I look at the kids, whether they're in the Bayview or in the Sunset or in the Richmond or North Beach, uh, their eyes are sparkling. They, you know, we created 6,000 jobs this summer. Uh, when we were called last year by President Obama to try to create summer jobs. And so I worked hard with the city departments and the business community. We got 6,200 jobs for kids this summer because of all the collaboration going on. And when you see these kids earning their way and understanding that something about the city is helping them land their first jobs, the earning power that they have, connect that with the education reforms that we're doing in the city and creating these opportunities uh, for looking at the industries that are in our immediate future, uh, I'd say there's a lot of smiles out there. And I saw some of them the other day. Uh, they're glad to go back to school. Uh, they're glad that our schools now, some of our middle schools, have tablets for the first time. I think they're feeling the vibrancy of the city along with the business community. Kofi Bonner, your company builds homes all across America, and a lot of the projects rely on government infrastructure, uh, roads, schools, et cetera, at some level. And if what Bruce Katz is saying is that that infrastructure investment is not going to be funded the way it has in the past, is Lenar thinking about, hey, what's the new model for funding infrastructure that's sort of a, a platform for, your, for Lenar and your business? Well, first, let me also say thank you for having us. I think this is a pretty uh, important uh, topic. I think The Metropolitan Revolution is a fascinating book. Uh, I will say that uh, I will attest to the fact that the federal government actually has left the building with respect to my industry. Um, <clears throat> it's been a while since uh, home builders have relied on the federal government to actually provide the basic infrastructure, I'll tell you that. Uh, we typically look to tax ourselves and the home, and the home buyers ultimately to fund the infrastructure. Uh, but we are going through all kinds of uh, financial, um, so I say, we're dancing around in circles in some respect, trying to understand new fin- or create new financial models that will enable us to build the necessary infrastructure that will support the lots and ultimately the homes and the, and the home buyers. Uh, so, uh, again, I'll say that uh, I'm really happy, uh, Mr. Mayor, that you're having fun. Uh, that's really important. I wouldn't say that. But <laughs> depends oh, on the day. Yeah, yeah. But, but I will say uh, one thing. I think that with respect to the, the, the you know, I, I'm very fortunate to be uh, trying to develop in San Francisco. I mean, this is a wonderful city, and the, you know, the current leadership and certainly past leadership has created a wonderful platform for me and my company to do some terrific things. As some of you know, we have absolutely uh, terrific assets in Treasure Island and uh, Hunters Point and Candlestick. But I will tell you that, uh, you know, prior to joining the uh, private sector, I was in the public sector. And I had a unique vantage point with respect to uh, regional thinking. I was a uh, uh, city manager of the city of Oakland for a while. I certainly was the director of redevelopment in the city of Emeryville. And, of course, at some point I was uh, leading portions of the redevelopment of this city. And I will tell you that there is, at least in those days, and I presume the same as today, there was very little regional thinking going on. And uh, in reading the Metropolitan Revolution, I will tell you that it brought back a lot of memories as to the difficulty of just trying to connect uh, different cities with respect to what really are common problems. Uh, Bruce Katz, let's talk about the example of Ohio. You write about some cities there that realized that they couldn't go it alone in the Rust Belt. 
and how they came together and forged forward together. Tell us that story. So Northeast Ohio, um, like a good portion of the Midwest, has experienced for decades uh, a level of deindustrialization. Um, but what they began to understand going back five or seven years is they still had tremendous assets in the production economy um, that essentially was an innovation economy, right, because they were building off of um, their major anchor institutions, advanced research, the Cleveland Clinic. So what you saw were philanthropies in business um, across Cleveland Metro, Youngstown Metro, Canton Metro, and Akron Metro coming together and saying, we've got to help our, our network of small and medium-sized manufacturing companies. Because these are relatively small firms. We're not talking about Ford Motor here. We're not talking about Siemens. We're talking about small manufacturing firms, primarily family-owned, um, that are retooling their business model, making investments in their facilities, um, retraining workers, and beginning to design their new products and the new services for global markets primarily. Um, because they're small, they really need the help and support of intermediary institutions uh, so they can access capital um, and really have that steady supply for community colleges and high schools of trained workers, technical skills. They are all in what we would call the STEM economy, science, technology, engineering, and math. Right, And the country has really ignored for a long time the fact that we've got to start in the high schools and with our community colleges having a, a fairly substantial number of our kids on a track where they're doing computer science and getting those technical skills that enable them to go into these uh, firms and the uh, non-manufacturing firms that are working with them and get really good jobs at good wages, 50, 60, $75,000. We decided that we would, um, you know, send a signal that somehow the United States would be a post-industrial economy. We would generate the ideas here and we would produce all of it in China. Nonsense. Northeast Ohio, other parts of the Midwest here, right? Large manufacturing production assets, some of the cutting edge of innovation. And in Northeast Ohio, what you really saw was philanthropy and business coming together in support of these firms. And now with shale gas, some other global dynamics, they are seeing substantial job growth that really are to the benefit of not just the kids with, you know, PhDs from Stanford or Georgia Tech or MIT, but a whole bunch of folks coming out of these community colleges and high schools with these technical degrees and technical proficiency. This is a signal to the country and a signal, frankly, to this metropolis. Well, let's map that to Silicon Valley because one of the criticisms of Silicon Valley is it, it's great with ideas that then get made in China. Silicon Valley is great if you're an engineer. It's not so great if you're a janitor or a middle class. You can't afford to live there. So let's get Bruce, you know, and then Mayor Lee, sort of how that model uh, stacks up against the Bay Area in terms of collaboration. So and here, also, so. This is the problem of being at Brookings and running all the stats all the time. I mean, about 17 or 18 percent of, of the economy in Silicon Valley is really coming off of manufacturing. There's an intense manufacturing sector in Silicon Valley. The cartoon in the United States is this is the Facebook and Google economy. The reality is much more complicated and much more sophisticated. So um, we literally had the Brookings board come here several years ago 
And my first recommendation to everyone is let's go look at Facebook and Google, and then let's go over and look at some of these production companies. Because if you want to get the full picture of innovation in this region, tracking up into the Bay Area, you've got to take this broader picture, and you have to understand the power of the Port of Oakland, frankly, and how that has become you know, a major export engine for the United States, not just off of agriculture from the Central Valley, but become, you know, off these products being developed in this region. The signal to this region is understand who you are, right? Don't forget the cartoon, you know, and forget the brand um, that has been basically understood by other parts, perhaps misinterpreted by other parts of the country and the world. Understand who you are with precision and then leverage your special assets, attributes, and advantages particularly in a way that can lift up large numbers of kids um, in this city, in Oakland, in Richmond, in Pittsburgh, and other parts mm-hmm. of, your, of your region. This is a really critical that the United States um, go back to fundamentals and understand how productive and innovative we are, both in idea generation but also in manufacturing, so that we can move forward post-recession with a much more productive, resilient, sustainable, and inclusive model. Well, Ed Lee, San Francisco is seen as a very desirable place to live. Certainly the property market says that, but not so clear on whether it's a desirable place to do business, perhaps for some tech businesses. But let's have your response to that and also what Bruce said. Well, that that certainly was uh, on my mind, that particular viewpoint, when uh, we were confronted a couple years ago with a company called Twitter, uh, that said that they were looking at a very large building in South San Francisco, didn't have the payroll tax, that they were going to grow from about 400 employees to over two years, about 2,000, and that, uh, that they couldn't pay that kind of tax uh, for that growth. And we're the only county in the whole state of California that had a payroll tax at the time. So uh, Supervisor Chu, Supervisor Kim, and I got together with the uh, – uh, with Twitter and uh, thought we could forge uh, something, but we couldn't just give it to them. Uh, and therefore, we looked at the whole of Market Street where uh, we used to have some great places on Market Street. And I understand some of the history that occurred there. And Part of it was because we, we didn't do transportation well right. that caused a lot of the downturn with all the small businesses along Market Street, a disinvestment, if you will. So we've suffered uh, with a very challenged market street, particularly mid-market for years, and we felt maybe that's the way to do it. It's create a, a area where we could provide that tax break, but only if you locate there and you deliver on the jobs that you promise. And that was, I think, a very good two-way street that started a very important conversation about how we talk with these new companies how we invite them in to discuss with us about what their needs are. Lo and behold, today we have 1,892 technology companies in San Francisco. They employ over 45,453 employees, and I keep <laughs> counting every single one of them. And, uh, the, uh, and the payroll tax went away, got changed? The exemption uh, on mid-market goes from 10th Street to 5th Street, on those blocks that line themselves out. Now, we 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 got some pretty good success because uh, Zendesk, Zeus, uh, Twitter, One Kings Lane, they all came. There was about a good maybe five to seven of them. 
But I think the real success, the biggest success that we felt was when uh, we saw that Dolby Laboratories, Square, and the AVA Housing Project came in at 8th and 10th and Market without any invitation and said, we don't need your tax break. We think what you're doing here is so positive. We're going to locate our business right there. And they moved in, and they're under construction as we speak. That's the real testament because I, I understand what government can do, but I've been around the corner too. We're supposed <laughs> to be incentivizers, but it's not sustainable for government to run programs forever, whether it's welfare. We're, we're supposed to get people on their feet. This is our role, and then let them create the opportunities. And that's why I emphasize that example so much that we used, we created the right invitation. I believe we identified the right infrastructure. Uh, we, we were working with them on everything from bike lanes to transportation routes. Uh, we committed to a safer market street, so that's why you see the substation at 6th and, and Market. We committed all those things to help them realize that we can have a better market street, and they did so, and now today, Twitter's got uh, almost 2,000 employees. They're expanding. The building, the whole old furniture mark building is completely filled. They're working on the building behind it. But they have caused the incentive to occur that I think one of the most important things that everybody speaks about, and I know we're really getting to, is how do we build investor confidence? Because eventually I'm not going to have enough money in the general fund. We've got other needs. i got to find ways in which I can incentivize a private sector company to come into San Francisco and help me build infrastructure or build the buildings above the infrastructure that we built as we've done in Mission Bay. And is manufacturing a missing piece here? I'd like to get Kofi also whether manufacturing can or will come back to San Francisco at Hunter's Point or Treasure Island somewhere else. I've heard Mayor Lee talk clearly about tech and coders, code bangers, et cetera. But what about people actually making things? Kofi Bonner? Well, I certainly think that the Hunters Point development certainly will provide an opportunity for people to make things. I think the question is what kind of things will be made, right? I mean, there are, there are different kind of advanced industries where, that uh, require more digital technology, and the digital technology is certainly around in the area, and I think there are certain kind of components that can be made in the, uh, in the Hunters Point, certainly commercial area. I think there are plenty of areas, I think, in the Bay where maybe even perhaps heavy manufacturing could occur. I, 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 I am struck when you stand back and look at the Bay Area and, and certainly as, and even put a developer's hat on. Uh, but for the fact that what I'm going to say requires you to go through a, a series of uh, independent, independent individual city entitlement processes, which in and of themselves would each be very, very painful, I think this would be brilliant for the Bay Area. You, you think of... The Mare Island, which is something that uh, an asset that Lanar actually uh, controls, the uh, Mare Island could be a fabulous heavy manufacturing base because uh, the the industry is there, the, the 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 bay is right there, water transport has been coming in and out of there for for years, fabulous. You look at the Oakland Army base, and we talked about the strength of the port of Oakland. I think those of us in San Francisco actually don't pay attention enough to what's going on at the port. The Port of Oakland is a very, very significant asset for this region. So you think of the Port of Oakland, you think of the fact that the Oakland Army Base 
is actually a, an asset that can be developed in a significant manner to strengthen the port and therefore strengthen the region. We have uh, 8,000 homes programmed uh, to go into the Treasure Island, and, as, and we have another 12,000 or so homes to go onto uh, the Hunters Point Candlestick area with the 3 million square feet of, of, uh, of commercial that could be portion of uh, R&D, could be some light industrial manufacturing. My point is when you stand back and look at it, you could have a situation where, and they're all linked by this wonderful resource we call the bay. And the biggest problem with entitlement, as you all know, is people are worried about transportation to and from various areas and auto traffic and truck traffic. We have the bay. Wouldn't it be great if we could have a regional thought around linking these wonderful resources for the benefit of the region so that perhaps the manufacturing that's occurring over there is linked to the uh, some of the work and manufacturing that could be occurring, frankly, on the Alameda Naval Air Station. I forgot that one. The, the workers could be living on Treasure Island and or Hunters Point and could be going to their various respective uh, points of work and play, etc., through the bay. That creates, I think, an incredible opportunity to lift the whole region in terms of productivity and capacity in a manner that really makes sense and utilizes the, the, the bay as a regional asset. Let me add that. Mayor The manufacturing is alive and well in San Francisco. We have a whole movement called SF Made uh, that we've uh, not only funded with our seed monies, but we've instilled with them that we need to really invite uh, those, art, those artisans that had been with us for many years. You know, arts programs are very rich in San Francisco, and in fact, when you said STEM, I wanted to say STEAM. Oh, absolutely. Because arts, I'll tell you, who was there at Market Street helping me revitalize it before even the technology companies? It was the arts programs. Uh, Great Arts Foundation, Burning Man, ACT, they were all there struggling with these rundown buildings, but creating a whole innovative spirit with us. And so SF Made is with us. We have identified, for example, Pier 70 which is the uh, dog patch area of San Francisco, where there's these old warehouses where steel used to be made and shipyard repairing, and some of that is still there. But these vast warehouses we've identified to keep the historic buildings intact but invite a brand-new use as manufacturing. And we, we have companies like Heath Ceramics, Chocolates, Beer Production. That's right. All of that is very still very good. And I'll tell you, People from China come over and they ask me, what is made in San Francisco? Because if you've got something that says made in San Francisco, we will buy it because we know that that will be a good brand, a high-quality brand. So if you, that's what you start seeing, Timbuktu bags in China. You're seeing accessories for your iPads. They're all made in San Francisco. But Bruce Katz, the conventional wisdom is the labor costs are too high. The things made in America, San Francisco, anywhere else can't compete globally with prices in China. Is this a scalable model? It's one thing to have a couple of boutique companies, but to really add large numbers of jobs? You know, I, I think manufacturing is, is a broad continuum, and, and we're really talking about the full continuum here. But, um, you know, for a long time, all we focused on were labor costs. Um, I could take you to a small country called Germany, right? Um, Germany decided we would not stigmatize production, right? What we would do, would we would have these close collaborations between research in universities 
and companies themselves. And then we would have a feeder system of apprenticeships, uh, vocational education, career academies, so that essentially 20% of the German economy is production-oriented compared to about 11% of the American economy, right? They did not give up on production because they understood it was so inextricably linked with innovation, and they are the export powerhouse of Europe, right? So it's not just about wages. It's about quality. It's about reliability of your energy supply, right? Um, It's around supply networks and supply chains that do need to be closer to each other. What I see happening in the United States right now is a lot of foreign investment coming back into our country because they understand post-recession, we still have the assets, right, Um, whether it's an entrepreneurial culture, whether it's an openness to immigration, let's hope we get federal immigration reform, uh, whether it's capital, willing to invest, and whether it's still enough of a production, um, you know, platform that if we're smart, in this post-recession environment. We won't go back to the economy we had pre-recession. We will move forward to a radically different future. So I'm, I'm bullish about this. And this region is rich in small batch, in boutique, on up to advanced. Mayor Lee, technology will have a role in all of that as well. Absolutely. Because uh, if, you, if you see this company, uh, 3D technology, for example, literally revolutionized the way we look at buildings, engineering systems, because you could see it all in different patterns. Well, uh, Autodesk is growing rapidly in San Francisco. They just opened up another uh, portion of their work at Pier 9, and we're all talking about advanced manufacturing, Mm -hmm. where you no longer have just the machines, but the machines are operating with an iPad, and you're reading out precision cutting and uh, everything from chocolates to uh, clothing to manufactured products. So technology is going to play a big role in advanced manufacturing. I think it's going to happen right here in San Francisco and the Bay Area. If you're just joining us on the radio, we're talking about the future of American cities and economic growth at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Our guests are Ed Lee, mayor of San Francisco, Kofi Bonner, president of the Bay Area Division, Urban Division of Lennar, and Bruce Katz, an author from the Brookings Institution in Washington. Let's talk about climate change. We talk about a low-carbon future and building green cities as export drivers and a low-carbon future as part of the drive, move away from, from fossil fuels. Mayor Lee, what is San Francisco doing in this area? Your, your predecessor uh, was quite an evangelist in this area, and some people think that it's, you don't hold as deep a passion for, for this set of issues or you're not out there as much on it. What is San Francisco doing to move toward a low-carbon future and prepare for things that the mayors of Boulder... New York, New Jersey have seen recently when they didn't expect it. Well, first of all, uh, uh, Mayor Newsom, uh, when he made some announcements, I was usually there in the department of crowds said, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> I'll get it done. I'll figure out a way to get it done. And uh, I, was, I was glad because I loved those announcements. And I was the head of his whole electric vehicle pr- uh, production, the whole gamut of it. And we created the whole Bay Area region, which – going back to Kofi's point about things that have to get regional. Uh, so the electric vehicle, and for, in fact, my official car is a Chevy Volt, uh, and I never, hardly ever get past the 40 miles 
of all the things that live in the city. So electric vehicles, uh, 40 miles means it just runs on electricity. Yeah, you don't get pure electricity. Anyway. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. People here know what I'm talking about. Uh, but we're, we're, we're building the infrastructure to welcome that in. We worked regionally to do so. Uh, and that will continue to be a high priority. And the governor came down just this weekend to pronounce yet an even more subsidy from the state because he's wanting to go from moonbeam to sunbeam. And that's wonderful. I, lo- I love the governor for that. I, you know, those are my years. Uh, but uh, And at the same time, at the same time, creating businesses, small businesses that support that whole infrastructure. Uh, I want to explore more wind. Uh, certainly solar power is, I think, a very huge conversation uh, in San Francisco. And we uh, are working hard to establish uh, larger prints where we can uh, complement our, uh, uh, our green energy production in the city. And then we still are very committed to reducing the energy use in the city. No new building, particularly no new office building, is anything less than a gold standard in lead now. And that's a great, great thing to pronounce. It is almost law here, and we are proud of every one of the 19 downtown office buildings that you see those cranes up and around the transit uh, uh, center, they're all going to be at least lead gold. They're going to be very energy efficient. Sophie Bonner, there's some really interesting things happening uh, planned out at Hunter's Point, including raising it 55 inches to plan for sea level rise. Uh, automated waste collection sounds like this Jetsons kind of system that's going to collect waste out there. Recycled water. Tell us just briefly about that and how you're getting ready for a future that's very uncertain with climate disruption. Well, uh, we're blessed by the fact that uh, the Hunter's Point Candlestick area is right on the waterfront. I mean, that's a wonderful asset for us in ultimately selling homes and property there. But obviously, you're absolutely right. Because of that, we have to pay extreme attention to the f- of climate change and the effects. I will also like to point out that uh, both the Hunters Point Candlestick uh, developments and the Treasure Island developments are both lead ND gold. And they're probably two of the largest uh, developments in the country with that designation. So we're very proud to attain uh, those designations. But certainly we are going to have to raise, uh, import a great deal of uh, clean uh, fill and to raise the site, as you said. Uh, we Above the base flood elevation, we have to go about three and a half feet above before the, uh, we actually even uh, begin to build the buildings. The buildings are set back sufficiently so that we can, uh, uh, we have the opportunity to do what we call adaptive uh, uh, flood management control, which means that We'll monitor this situation every year, and we have the ability to build and break up the water as it comes into the site. We have all kinds of really innovative landscaping features within the the parks area to to, to help manage the, the the rising levels within the soil. And 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 candidly, we 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 expect to spend a great deal of money in the overall infrastructure. So it's something we paid a great deal of attention to. We believe that climate change is real, and as such, we have to engineer those solutions. Uh, but, you know, in addition to that, where, as you mentioned, the automated waste recovery system is actually pretty cool. Uh, 
You know, mm -hmm. typically you find it in most of these uh, sort of medical campuses and more campus-like situations. But the notion is, and it really has to do with reducing the amount of uh, space that garbage trucks run through uh, cities and uh, picking up garbage. And then, you know, there's a, everybody has to move their cars on one side or move their cars on another side or, or uh, you know, there's just the noise from these diesel trucks going through the town. So we've created a system where people will deposit their their garbage with a, a, a several feet away from their buildings into these uh, chutes that ultimately uh, every, I think it's every 10 minutes or so, automatically shoot to a, a central waste collection system. So the garbage trucks actually go to that location only. And there are about two or three in a 700-acre uh, uh, development to, to, to really minimize the amount of uh, trucks running through. And we're doing this in, in conjunction with Recology, the waste management company. So there are a few things like that which we think are pretty innovative. We're working with uh, some of the, uh, uh, the, the technology companies in town to really create a very uh, technologically smart community, as we call it, so that the fiber comes not only to uh, down the road and to, to you know and then is tied in by copper, but actually goes to the home, and the home then can continue the fiber, so that people, if they choose to live and work in their home, they'll have the appropriate. Uh, uh, speed, if you will, within the home to do the kind of work that we expect to see people in San Francisco to do. Sounds cool if it actually happens and it gets built on time and on budget. Bruce Katz, I want to get your response to that. And also, uh, your, uh, you write that uh, something about cars and, and driver licenses. Well, I'm going to get to that, but sure. first. I just, I just wanted to build on what Kofi and the mayor said because uh, obviously um, climate is an existential threat. And we have to grapple with this um, for the future of the planet, right? It is also an economic imperative. Uh, we've mapped the clean economy in the United States. It's about 2.7 million jobs. It's bigger than the fossil fuel industry. It's very varied and distinct. Today or in the yes, future? Yes, today. today. It is more production-oriented. It is more innovation-fueled. And it's more export-driven than the economy as a whole. This is the vanguard of the next industrial revolution, we want to be at the head of it. So in the book, The Metro Revolution, we talk about Portland, weird and crunchy Portland, right? Um, Portland actually doubled exports. You're in San Francisco. We don't think they're so weird and crunchy, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was just saying that you know, I'm not sure how San Francisco would respond to that. We're weirder and we're more crunchier. But, but I, I, you know, what Portland is betting on is a brand because they were so smart with sustainable development at the metropolitan scale, uh, the urban growth boundary, a shift to transit, a teardown of the freeway in the 70s, they've attracted a lot of firms that excel in sustainable products and services. Their new brand is We Build Green Cities. What they're saying to the Asian cities and to the Latin American cities is we can help you plan for a sustainable future so you can literally breathe and drink clean water and we want to help you plan but also supply these products. If we innovate in the clean economy, we will export those services, export those products, good jobs, quality jobs, a very different model. Um, and, I, you know, I, I think we, we need to get beyond labels that mostly come out of Washington, D.C., that are mostly partisan-driven, that are mostly ideological about what the clean economy is. It, we've mapped it. It is very real. It is very productive. Cities will get about the business of actually developing and fueling this. 
want to follow up on, on something that you write about, which is cars. And you note how in 1983, half of young Americans had driver's licenses. Today, only 29%. So right. that speaks to a future of fewer cars and perhaps more density, more people in cities with fewer cars and more people. And I'd like to get Mayor Lee to respond, too, about that this cultural change and, and the role of cars and how, how we get around. Well, there's, a, there's some big demographic preferences and demographic changes that are underway. And we see it, really, with the rebirth of our cities, uh, not just as residential uh, communities and communities with great amenities, but really as you know, sort of the vanguard of the next innovation. But, you know, April Wren is here, you know, um, sort of has written a lot about the shareable city, collaborative consumption. Um, you know, we're seeing people sort of treat um, some of these products that in the past you would need to own that you can now share, right? And we see this obviously with companies like Zipcar. We see this um, with, with many different sectors of the consumption economy. So something has been unleashed, um, and frankly, in the last five or ten years in the United States, fueled in very part by technological innovation, um, but also because of these vast demographic preferences. The millennials are sending signals to the market. Uh, we do not want to be uh, you know, working in closeted science parks 30 miles away from a vibrant central core, dependent on a car, dependent on, you know, all that that brings with it in terms of the cost. We want options. We want choices in how we live our lives and where we work and how we literally get around. This is profound, and, and it's only been underway for a relatively short period of time. And cities like San Francisco that, that basically can get ahead of this curve are going to benefit immensely. And, and again, part of it, too, is... Uh, we're not going to have too many other choices unless we do create the multiple modes of transportation. And uh, You're going to have this one choice. You want to sit in the car for four hours getting down to Santa Clara to wait for the new stadium to open, Levi's Stadium, right? <laughs> or what Mayor Lee will probably do is get on the Bay Area bike sharing program that happens to have a station at City Hall, ride down the Caltrain, Hop on Caltrain, and you get down to Santa Clara, get off and get the Santa Clara transit that brings you right to the door of Levi Stadium. We gotta start talking about that. Don't talk about we lost the stadium. This is what we do to support our Niners and the business and the excitement here. But, you know, we, and that's why I was a big supporter of Free Muni. Uh, I know Ed Riskin's in the audience there. It was gonna sit, it was gonna challenge us a little bit financially. But I wanted another generation of kids to understand and enjoy riding our Muni. That's what my kids told me. They said, Dad, you don't need to drive me where I need to go. I'm going to take Muni because they know where it goes. They're used to it. We need and more and more uh, reinvesting and investing in our transportation infrastructure. Now that conversation is for the whole Bay Area as we talk about electrifying Caltrans, high-speed rail, bring it right into downtown I need it. We need it. I don't have any more room to expand the airport runways. And we're losing out to larger airports because international flights is where our economy is going. And the only way I can get more room at the airport is if I get that commute between Los Angeles and San Francisco eliminated with high-speed rail, one-third of our flights, then I get to open up for international markets. Then we can have 
Latin SF and China SF and open up the rest of Africa and all the other places we want to go to. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the Bay Area and other American regions and cities at Climate One. Our guests are Ed Lee, mayor of San Francisco, Kofi Bonner from the Lenar Corporation, and Bruce Katz, an author and analyst from the Brookings Institution. I'm Greg Dalton. I'm going to ask one more question until we go to our audience participation, uh, and that is, uh, Bruce Katz, you write that cities are the future, they're their economic engines, and they can fix our broken politics. I haven't heard yet how they can fix the broken politics that is crippling this country? Well, um, you know, the federal government is government. States are governments. Uh, Cities are really networks of elected officials like the mayor, the county leaders, uh, but also corporate, civic, union, university, philanthropic. Um, All of these different sectors of our city are different portions of the network. They can do amazing things by themselves, but when they come together, they can do grand things. And I think cities are really governed, co-governed, but I would call a pragmatic caucus. They put place over party, they put collaboration over conflict, and they put evidence over dogma. It's almost the opposite of how Washington operates today. So I think what can happen in the United States, and it's already happening, so all our book does is really chronicle and capture the energy, the positive pragmatic energy that's underway in the country. If we can see city after city, metropolitan area after metropolitan area, collaborating to compete and finding their game changers and finding their transformative interventions and becoming more competitive and more inclusive and more sustainable, over time that pragmatism will infect States, and it ultimately infect the national government. Because at the end of the day, last time I checked, we still have a representative democracy. They represent us. And if the signal's coming up our system, is we want you to act in the service of these transformative interventions, at some point they have to respond. Um, it's not going to happen tomorrow. In fact, tomorrow they may shut down the government. But... <laughs> um, but um, but It it will happen over time. Um, America is the most resilient society um, and the most innovative economy. So, you know, folks, um, we will get our act together. But this time around, it'll come from the communities that are the engines of our economy, the centers of trade and investment, and now the vanguard of policy innovation. Some people might question whether the representative democracy is really working when, for example, things like 97% of members of the NRA want a background check and yet it doesn't happen. So there's some broken links there. But let's, let's go to our audience questions. Let's have our audience questions. Uh, first of all, if you'd like to join us, uh, the line will start over there with our producer, Jane Ann. Uh, if you're on this side, please go through those doors over there, and then we'll have a line and, and include as many as we, uh, as many as we possibly can. Um, and invite you to come up in with one, one part question or comment. I'm here to help you keep it brief and on point, if you need that help. And uh, we'll include as many as we can in the next 18 minutes. Let's go to audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. Hi, my name's Peter Gisela, and I really like that word collaboration, but I always see it failing. And I was wondering, especially with Mayor Lee talking about uh, Youth Summer Job Corps program, how he was able to collaborate money for that to happen. I'm really intrigued how you did that, and where were the downsides? What positive things can you mention, all three of you, that helps be productive in 
this idea of collaboration. Is there any new technology out there that can help facilitate that or document it too? Thank you. Well, Mayor Lee? The, uh, this has been two years in the making. Uh, as I said, uh, we wanted to really take jobs seriously for everybody in the city. And, and I've always felt uh, a pretty strong passion for our youth because they're, somehow they're going to take our jobs in the future. I want them to be prepared. Uh, and so uh, I, uh, we set a pretty high goal this year, this summer, 6,000. We did a huge room of all of our chamber businesses, our technology companies, and we just really asked them to do one simple thing. Just take a minute and remember how you got your first job. And then find out who helped you get that job. And, lo- and, and as they went through that minute, they all realized they got to start helping our kids get those jobs. And that's how we came about. Now we had 115 companies join up. In the private sector, they established 2,000 jobs. And in all of the city agencies, 4,200 jobs. Uh, and they're all good-paying jobs, exposed them. But we also had nonprofits in the community do the training. Because some of these kids, they'll look down at their shoes and go, uh, give me a job. And that's the interview. We had to teach them how to put together a resume, put it online. These were all the nonprofits that have been doing good training. And then we practice interviewing with them. I even had to enter into a tie-tying contest with the kids. But we were part of this day-long training where they could present themselves and go from, hey, I need a job, to my name is so-and-so, I work hard, how can I help your company be successful? And those are the kind of interviews that took place, and that's why there were there are 6,200 jobs that the kids fulfilled this summer. How would you do in the contest? <laughs> I lost. <laughs> <laughs> it took time for that. Uh, let's have our next question. Yes, welcome to Climate One. Thank you. My name is Margaret Bradkin, and I've devoted my life to making San Francisco a model place for kids. But my question is, you know, the feds are leaving, and the feds have left big way, and that means they've left a lot of money, a, a huge gap, and we need – so it, we not only need to do the kind of wonderful things that Mary Lee is talking about, but we need money in our cities to make sure we have the kids that are going to be able to take these wonderful jobs, and you've all admitted that, and, you know, that's implicit in what you're talking about. So I hate to use the word taxes, but how are we going to create the revenue at the city level to do the kinds of things that the feds have just left us hanging to do because – the kids are in poverty, and things are getting worse, and we need our cities to step up. Thank you. Mayor Lee? Well, <laughs> I don't know well, who else. Wow. <laughs> well, first of all, we, we have a pretty robust budget. Uh, now it's approaching $8 billion a year. We do two-year – by the way, it, I think in order to get the kind of revenue, Margaret, you're talking about and the things that we need, we first of all begin with the basics. We have to have a strong – business approach to our budget. And so creating that economic infrastructure in the city was something that I spent a lot of time doing. The very first thing I did was tackle pension reform. And then we created a health care, a health trust fund so that we could start paying for the unfunded mandate that would hurt us a few years down the road, $4.4 billion. So we can't even talk about stuff until we built an infrastructure to be able to be successful. Well, today we are because we've done all the things that rating agencies, insurance companies, other fails, failures of other cities across the country did not do, 
and paying attention to, all these unfunded mandates, we put them into the mix. And so now we do two-year budgeting, five-year financial planning, and we invest, and we got four different reserve accounts for the city. Now that we've done that, companies can come in and say, I'll pay for that. I'll pay for that. I mean, why would the Warriors come in and spend $120 million fixing up a dilapidated pier before they can even put a structure above it? Because they've got confidence that this city is doing the right things with its infrastructure investments, with its financial conversations, with its economic structure. And that's what invites innovation to occur. You can't really innovate if day-to-day your argument is over, uh, we don't have enough of this and that. You can actually build that base. And this is what we've done with San Francisco, and I'm very, very proud of it. And that's why more companies want to come in, more employees want to live here, and they want to build that tax base for us. And we're going to do a lot more with it. Bruce Cass, I want to get you in briefly. We'll go to another question. You think that there's going to be sort of the Detroits of the future and the San Francisco's of the future and that San Francisco's going to be much better positioned because it's going to get tighter fiscally. Well, I think, um, first of all, we just need to understand um, the federal government does certain things, but it doesn't do everything. Um, And there's almost a mythology that this is an all-powerful government. What they really do is redistribute income around the socially safety net particularly health care, and particularly retirement benefits, and they invest in basic science uh, and research, and they basically invest in our security, right? I, there's a whole bunch of things, particularly with education and with skills and with infrastructure, where the cities and the metropolitan areas and the states today, before we even see a squeeze down, are really carrying the lion's share of the investment in this country. So the federal government, really what it needs to do is do less better. And we need to demand that from them. And I actually think, though, that the challenge we're going to have, and this is really your question, Greg, is we're going to have spatial uneven growth. Because this is a very powerful and very prosperous economy here. And when you make the hard budget choices, uh, hard budget decisions you've done in the city, then you're preparing yourself off of a very, you know, robust and vital economic base to grow even, you know, more and better jobs and to sort of bring in the youth that you're describing. Now, can Detroit do that? Actually, Southeast Michigan is seeing an enormous rebound and recovery in the aftermath of the recession because automobiles are really just computers on wheels. Um, and the question for them is now how to engage a city 138 square miles in Detroit, but with still some amazing assets in the core, the downtown, and the midtown. How to engage the city of Detroit in that rebound? But look, it is what it is. Okay, we 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 can try to wish a different kind of national government in the next year, or three years, or five years, or ten years. It is not going to happen. This is going to happen. Cities and metropolitan areas working across different sectors and disciplines and parties and jurisdictions, getting their act together and making the hard choices. That's our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Good evening. Thank you very much for an excellent panel. Uh, My name is April Rinney, and I work in the space called collaborative consumption or the sharing economy. Um, And I want to pick up on something that Bruce Katz said. Really, when we look at shared resources, it's not just transportation. 
This is extending into every sector we can think of, from accommodation and space to services for children, education, financial services, the list goes on. And when we think about what it means to share assets as opposed to own them, it's economically more efficient, it's better for the environment, and it's also really good for community building. And Mayor Lee, earlier this summer, you were one of 15 mayors here in the U.S. to sign what's called the Shareable Cities Resolution, basically declaring your support for this kind of activity. And I'd love to hear your vision for a shareable city. And in addition, it's not just about sharing assets. We're thinking really around collaboration. What does this mean for the government as a sharing-based platform, collaborative financing mechanisms, and so forth? Thanks. Thank you. Really? Well, gosh, I could talk all night long about the sharing economy. I'm excited about it. But, you know, there are other industries that have provided us with great examples. When you look at the Mission Bay and all the pharmaceutical laboratories that uh, are established there now, Fiber, Nectar, Bayer, and, you know, we did a lot in the infrastructure to invite them in. But now they're realizing that the federal research dollars are drying up. So they're innovating. What do they do? they start thinking sharing. And when you go down there today, you'll see these very expensive laboratories that are being shared by two or three pharmaceutical companies that wouldn't even talk to each other five years ago because of the competitiveness and the protection of their patents. They've got all those agreements. They're saving money. They're bringing the drugs faster to the market. They're saving each other invaluable time. That's another example. That's why I get so excited about when you get this attitude about sharing things, you got talent to share, you got assets to share, uh, you got people that can share space. Uh, it's, it will be, I think, very revolutionary for us. And it can happen naturally in urban settings where some things are naturally have to be shared. The roads have to be shared with the bicyclists and the pedestrians. We're getting more and more use of that. We have to teach people how not to drive alone if they have to do that. So there's a, there's a lot more to say about this, but it begins with an attitude of how you would, can apply it, as you suggest, to literally everything that we think and do, where we used to do it alone, used to do it in isolation, used to say, I'm not worth anything unless I own those things. And the other point, you bring a lot more people into the economy when you do the sharing economy. A lot more people participate and can be just as successful so does that mean San Francisco can share a Warriors arena with Oakland? If they come over there. Yeah. Okay, if they come over here. All right. <laughs> Let's have our next question. Hi, my name is Katie Musner, and I'm actually from Vallejo, and I'm running for Vallejo City Council, and I'm very interested in this topic. Uh, we, when the Navy left, the city contracted severely. Uh, we went into bankruptcy. We're out, and we've got some things going on Mare Island. We have Lenar, Mare Island. Um, but in this region where there's so much wealth in, in San Francisco and Silicon Valley, how do we compete uh, without taking – we actually fought a liquefied natural gas plant development back in 2002 and won. So how do we develop uh, in our area without, without taking those kinds of businesses that other communities might not want so to, make our, to build our community and make it strong and create good jobs in our area? Who would like to feel that? Bruce Katz? Well, I- you know, I, I think um, this is raising a really essential question, right, and not just for the Bay Area but for Silicon Valley because there are a lot of communities being left behind. Um, and a lot of the conversation we have is about improving access for those communities um, and improving the education and skills of their residents. 
I think we have to talk more broadly about an economic transformation. I mean, if we are truly going to have uh, a shift in our advanced industry and a growth in our steam economy, a portion of that really can be located in these places because they all do have tremendous access to infrastructure, right? Um, They're sitting in one of the wealthiest and most prosperous regions of the country. I mean, this is a broader notion of a sharing metropolis, right? And so I think as, you know, if you took a 10,000-foot view of this metropolis and the, the, the San Jose metropolis, and we began to think about how do we imagine transformative assets and transformative industries being located in some of these areas that are really hard-pressed today, um, given these disruptive changes, which for the United States can be very, very positive. I, I, this is a conversation that I don't think is a conversation circa 2005. So I, I, my sense is this requires some regional collaboration. It requires a level of regional imagination, right, that we should be able to do together. Um, you know, I'm beginning to think that regions need not one, but a, a, a sort of a nucleus of what we would call chief strategy officers in companies, right? And we should be thinking about your global position off your base of advanced industry and STEAM and so forth, but also be thinking about the, the location of some of these areas um, that used to be industrial areas going back many, many years, but now can be repurposed for a very different economy. So um, I, I'm really glad you brought this up because, uh, you know, the past does not need to be prologue, right? I mean, we... You know. I Kofi Bonner? I think that the, that, that is frankly entirely the point I made earlier, that there are so many assets on a regional basis. But what I have found over the years, certainly in the time I was in the public sector, is there was just not enough time spent amongst the various cities talking about these regional assets. Now, that's not to say we don't have any number of regional agencies. As you know, this, we have a ton of regional agencies, and they are all full of brilliant people. Unfortunately, there is very little authority to do anything in these regional agencies other than somehow sort of try to collaborate with the various uh, cities in, in what they wish to do. So I think perhaps if there is a, a challenge from the Metropolitan Revolution for this region is to really think about how we can begin to create regional think uh, tanks or strategic offices, the top economic development officers of each of the cities should be forced to meet on a regular basis to perhaps think about what are the regional assets that are perhaps located in their, they just happen to be located in their particular juris, political jurisdictions, but they may be a regional asset because it makes more sense because of their location, because of their economic dynamics, to satisfy a particular need for the region. And that particular location shouldn't suffer uh, some economic uh, 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 consequence for the fact that that particular regional asset is located there. Let's get Mayor Lee to respond to that on more regional collaboration. Then we'll go to our last audience question. Mayor and, Lee. And, and I've, I've uh, I'm telling Bruce and Kofi as we uh, began to start it that I've become more and more uh, using some time to participate in regional entities. And the Bay Area Council, uh, Silicon Valley Leadership Forum have begun uh, giving us the opportunity to meet with the other mayors, uh, all the different cities, to talk about regionally 
on topics that we all care about. Transportation is always going to be one because we have to have the ability to have a regional Bay Area transportation system that works. And if we do, I always speak not just of San Francisco, but as the Bay Area region, when I go to these international cities to compete for their investments and their companies to come over here, is ultimately uh, I don't necessarily care that a company might be located in another part of the Bay Area, we're going to still be able to uh, benefit from that economic upkeep. And so as a, as a Bay Area, we've got to keep this, this system that we have very strong. That's why working on environment, working on regional transportation issues, uh, those sorts of things bring us together, and I think we'll share resources to get, continue getting that done. Last question. Yes, ma'am. Well, thank you so much, uh, Deborah. So many of our realities, of course, have changed. And we have geoengineering helping with the modification of climate change. We also have um, quantum computing now that we know NSA is uh, creating and working with artificial intelligence, which is all about reducing the human's uh, need to participate in the workplace. We're seeing robotic uh, machines roll out all across China. We just saw the uh, Golden Gate uh, toll takers replaced with machinery. And the future is really about replacing humans with machinery. And we see that pervasively in the economy. So I guess I would like to talk to you, Mr. Katz, about that, because certainly the Brookings Institute has been uh, largely supportive of that research that is essentially replacing humans with machinery and working with Google. Thank you. Thank you. Bruce Katz. We've been here before, right? I mean, there have been very disruptive technologies in the past where people basically said this will remove work. Um, and this will diminish employment, and actually the opposite has occurred. Um, and, and so uh, I, I do not, by any stretch, want to be Pollyannish about robotics or in certain segments of our economy, um, what that means for certain kinds of work. But, you know, if we focus, I think as the mayor and Kofi have focused throughout this conversation, about growing a very different kind of economy, um, that's productive, that's innovative, that's sustainable, that's resilient, right? Um, and we begin to talk about some of these issues, like the shift to a lower carbon economy, uh, as an economic first, you know, giving cities and metros first mover advantage, you know, large job potential. I don't think we should be overly worried or concerned about this technological innovation. We have to be always at the vanguard of innovation in this country and the world. Um, And we went off course for a very long time, and we had our comeuppance in this recession. This is our wake-up call. This is the moment that we need to understand what assets and advantages we have in the world, and we need to leverage them, and we need to maximize their potential for people and places like Vallejo that have been left behind. If we can stay on that focus... I, I think we can make up not only the jobs deficit that we have in the country, about 10 million jobs right now, but we can also grow better jobs with good wages, quality jobs, dignity of work that can help a large portion of our youth make their way into the economic mainstream. Let us not be scared about innovation. Let's embrace it, and let's embrace it for ourselves and ultimately for the world. We have to end it there. Our thanks to Bruce Katz, Vice President of the Brookings Institution. <laughs> the co-author of the Metropolitan Revolution.
how cities and metros are fixing our broken politics and fragile economy. We also heard from Kofi Bonner, president of the Bay Area Urban Division of Lennar, a large home builder, and San Francisco Mayor Ed Lee. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for listening to Climate One. Free podcasts of this and other Climate One programs are available in the iTunes store. Thank you for coming tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you.